If you've got a Bible, we're going to be in John 12 tonight. We spent a couple weeks in John 12 so far. We're going to spend um, probably a couple more because we're not going to get through it tonight. Um, but we are going to get, um, we're going to kind of stray from John 12. We're going to use the, some verses as a kind of a launching point to talk about kind of a big picture thing. Um, if the kingdom seeker title doesn't kind of clue you in to, 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 to something that we're going to talk about. Um, as in what is God up to? What is God preparing for us behind the scenes and and could it be that this passage and some of the verses that we're going to read kind of tease out something that God is up to? Um, and, and could this passage even be a fulfillment or a preview of what God is building to? Um, I think so. And uh, God showed me a lot from this scripture. I didn't expect it uh, um, to come out of this text. But uh, as uh, Spirit kind of started moving and God started uh, talking, I thought, well, hey, let's, let's go with it. So we uh, will probably go around the block or two a, a time. So um, around the block a time or two. Um, so uh, just buckle up. We're going to have a good time. I've got some verses up here for, on the screen we're going to go through from Daniel. So uh, that'll be fun, and hopefully it'll make you go home and read a lot more, study a lot more, and we'll come back and do it another time a little more in-depth. But tonight's more of just kind of a, a taste of some kingdom talking. So uh, we're going to jump in right at the end of the triumphal entry. Um, and again, Easter's coming up, so we're going to be doing plenty of talk about the triumphal entry here in a couple of weeks. But Jesus has paraded into town. He's ridden on a donkey. They've waved palm branches. Hosanna, Hosanna. We, we know all that. Um, he's been heralded as the Messiah. That's the, the song they sing and the verses they quote. They're not insignificant. They're not accidental. They were intentional about this being the one the prophet spoke of. This means that something big is about to happen. The kingdom of God is near. It's close. And they are expecting Israel to, ri- to raise above the Old Testament heights to even greater heights and surpass every kingdom on earth. They're expecting any minute now Jesus is going to snap his fingers and no more Pilate, no more Caesar and Israel will rule and reign forever. They're expecting it. They're waiting for it. They're looking for it. But actually, this is, the begin- this is not the beginning of the kingdom, but in fact, this may be the point where Jesus puts pause and begins working on something else um, that is still part of that kingdom-building process. Um, not what the Jews expected, but we're a part of, of what he started e- even in this exchange. So little, a little preview uh, of what we're going to get into. And Now, all the religious leaders... All right, an all-time low. Um, we read about the meeting they had in John 11. They are defeated. They're deflated. They're thinking, oh, no, there's no stopping this guy. Um, it's undeniable that he's from God. It's undeniable he's of God. So, yes, we're going to try to betray him. We're going to try to, to, to pay somebody to betray him. We're going to try to stop him. But we have our doubts that we're going to be able to stop this man who is clearly from God. In uh, John 12, verse 19, this is kind of the exasperation of the Pharisees in response to what they have just seen, the parade, the excitement, the enthusiasm, the support for Jesus. The Pharisees therefore said among themselves, you see that you are accomplishing nothing. Their attempts to stop Jesus. Look, the world has gone after him. Now they're being a little hyperbolic because that's not the whole world. That's just Jerusalem Main Street, right? (laughs) It's just the Jews, but they're being a little hyperbolic. But could it be? And turns out it actually is the case that their hyperbole was actually prophecy. Their hyperbolic statement was actually a very prophetic statement. And I want you to hear verses 19 and 20 in one breath. The Pharisees therefore said among themselves, Look, see that you are accomplishing nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. And they didn't know this next verse was going to happen. They didn't know this next scene was happening. But I think John was grinning when he wrote this and as God inspired it. Now there were certain Greeks among those who came up to the worship feast. 
And they said to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee? And asked him, saying, sir, we wish to see Jesus. The Pharisees hyperbolically are, uh, say in verse 19, the world is going to go after him at this point. And some Greeks from the other side of the world stumble their way onto the streets of Jerusalem and they want to see this man called Jesus of Nazareth. Again, I think John has to be grinning as he's telling the story. He shows the Pharisees' exasperation next to the Greeks, these Gentiles, who shouldn't have been at this festival, who shouldn't have been seeking the Jewish would-be Messiah. But here they are. They declare the whole world has gone after Jesus, and of course it was only a Jewish parade, it was a Jewish festival, but then some Greeks stumble onto the scene. Now, now some underscores what's actually being teased out here, and I, this is so good, and I, I, maybe I like this more than y'all would like this, but I just really had a, I had a, 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 a just a, a, a good time preparing this and studying this. I just really got excited about how the Bible is so inspired, how God ties it all together, and it all just works so perfectly. You couldn't make this up. Uh, but this is teasing out and setting up something, and, and again, buckle up, because this is going to be, uh, I think, a, a good time, but a little bit of an all-over-the-place ride. I promise this is going to loop back around and actually paint a pretty good picture, but these aren't just any Greeks. This is the beginning of what God would go on to do and what he was planning, had been planning to do for ages. Now, of course, Jesus wasn't just the Jewish Messiah. We know that. Obviously, we are here because he wasn't just the Jewish Messiah. He is everybody's Messiah, right? We know that, right? He's the Savior of the whole world. He's the Lamb of God sent to save the whole world, to wash away the world's sin. By the end of this story, he would be lauded as the Messiah by more Gentiles than Jews, right? And 2,000 years later, there's more Gentiles celebrating Jesus than there are Jews celebrating Jesus. So this is just the beginning of the world going after Jesus. Little did they know just how much it would take, how much the world would go after Jesus. Now, it was, wasn't uncommon. It wasn't uncommon for Gentiles to attend Jewish festivals. Again, it was a big deal. Uh, there was a lot of commotion around Jerusalem for these religious festivals. Um, the world was connected more than ever. So, uh, you know, a lot of Gentiles would have been living in Judea. Um, they would have attended these festivals just like you may would attend a festival that necessarily you aren't into or a part of. You would go just because the crowds would kind of be, would suggest it would be a good time. Uh, hundreds of thousands of Jews would make pilgrimage. Um, and again, many Gentiles living in the area would have came and, and, and wanted to catch a glimpse of what was going on in Israel and hear the stories of old. Um, and of course, the Old Testament is full of Gentiles giving lip service to the God of Israel. There was a way for Gentiles to worship in the temple. And, and there is a precedent in the Old Testament of Gentiles who actually come to put their faith in God. But it was always sort of a lip service. It was always sort of a, we still want to believe in our gods, but we're going to acknowledge your God kind of thing. Uh, remember back to the early days when the Jews first came into the promised land, Rahab, Rahab the harlot, we know her as, uh, for she said, we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. What you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. So this is an example when the spies from Joshua were sent into the land to inspect Jericho and to see the promised land, to see how they were going to invade and, and, and again conquer the land. Rahab met them and said, listen, we've heard of y'all. More than that, we've heard of your God. And we're terrified because you guys have rolled into town. 
For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. So here is Rahab, a Gentile woman, a not-so-good Gentile woman, right, saying, hey, your God is the real deal, right? Now, you read all throughout the Old Testament as Israel interacts with other nations that you'll see kings and leaders. The Queen of Sheba visits Solomon, for instance, but there are many others um, where you'll have these Gentiles acknowledge the power of Israel's God, but they wouldn't confess his superiority or exclusive status as the one and only God. You see, the Gentiles would say, well, yeah, we believe that your God is real, but we believe our God is real, and our God is better and stronger, right? But we'll acknowledge that Israel's God is powerful, but we're not going to confess that he's superior or he is exclusively the one and only God. That's so narrow and that's so uh, you know, unrealistic to ever imagine. But, but something stands out. In the book of Daniel, if you've ever read the book of Daniel, there's a lot of cool things in there, but we get a glimpse of how everything was playing out to build up God's kingdom where this God of Israel would become the God of the whole world. Not only, Obviously, he is the God of the whole world, but would be acknowledged by the whole world as the one and only God, not just through lip service, but through true and sincere devotion. And Daniel is written when Israel is at its lowest point. Um, Israel that was brought out of slavery in, from Egypt, built up to be one of the wonders of the world, fell, divided. J Israel was conquered. Judah was conquered. They're slaves and they're in captivity in Babylon, the empire that rules the world at this time. Uh, Daniel features and highlights how God still had plans for Israel, though. And that's really the message of that book. As the Old Testament comes to an end, God uses Daniel and others from the royal house of Judah who were lined up to be king, but were taken from their, their homes and taken from their land, taken from their would-be destiny, and made servants in the house of Nebuchadnezzar in the kingdom of Babylon. And God uses these boys, uses these men to challenge the kings and gods of Babylon. Of course, Daniel was one of them, and we know there were three other pretty famous companions of his. But they stand out because of their faith, and they stand up for their faith, and their faith results in the kings of the land acknowledging their God as real, and, and on a level with their own gods, and, and of course Nebuchadnezzar thought, he, thought that he was one of the gods in, in flesh, so he actually acknowledges the Jewish God. Um, and then Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. He has a, several dreams, but he has a dream in which he sees the future of the world. He sees all the different kingdoms of the world. He sees his own kingdom, but then he sees his kingdom fall to another kingdom that he's never heard of before. And then he sees another kingdom coming after that kingdom, and then another coming after that kingdom. He gets visions of kingdom after kingdom. It's like he's getting to see the timeline of the future of the world. Now, interpretation tells us, and history tells us, that the kingdoms that he saw were Persia and Greece. Persia would come after Babylon. Greece would come after Persia. And then he saw another kingdom, a ways off in the future, a nondescript kingdom, like a beast that just couldn't be described. But above all those kingdoms was the God of Israel. And he woke up thinking, how in the world is the God of Israel above all these kingdoms, above all our gods? He doesn't take this dream very serious. He continues to build shrines to himself and exalt himself as one of the gods or the God of the world. But Daniel, Daniel who interpreted those dreams, absolutely takes those dreams serious. Daniel, of course, outlives Nebuchadnezzar, and he's around when Nebuchadnezzar's grandson squanders the kingdom and loses everything to a new empire on the rise, the Persians. 
Daniel, becomes, uh, because of his wisdom and leadership, survives the transfer of power, rare to have happened in his day. He becomes one of the lead officers in the Persian government. But of course, because of his exclusive and narrow and idea that his God was superior than the other gods, his faith causes him trouble. And he, uh, really, the, the, the officials and the courts and the law of the land backs the Persian king in a corner and Daniel is put in the lion's den because he refuses to admit that his God is not the only God, but rather just one of the many gods. But, Daniel, but Darius, the king of Persia, Darius doesn't want to put him in the lion's den, has to because of the laws and the pressure of his, uh, of his colleagues. He, though, holds out hope that Daniel's God might be in Daniel's corner. Of course, we know how that story goes. Daniel 6 says, Then... At break of day, the king arose and went in haste to the den of the lions. As he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, All Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? And then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouth, and they have not harmed me. Of course, Persia was uh, was the symbol of Persia was the lion, right? The kings of Persia were often called the lion kings. And here you have Daniel in a den of lions saying that his God was able to shut the mouth of the lion. Now, this decree, uh, the, response from, the response of this is that Darius is overwhelmed by the power of Daniel's God. And this is what Darius does after that. Then, then King Darius wrote to all the people's nations and languages because Persia was a, a, was a global empire, right? They had influence over the Greeks, influence over the, the, the Oriental East. They had influence over all the Middle East, over parts of Africa, over as north as you could go. They, Darius sent a decree to all peoples, all nations, all languages that dwell on the earth. Peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree. that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble in fear before the God of Daniel, the God of Daniel, for he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed. His dominion shall be to the end. He delivers, he rescues, he works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. So again, you have this nation of Israel that's been conquered by all the earth and all of a sudden you have Darius, the Persian king, issuing a decree that goes out to the whole world that the God of Israel, the God of the defeated nation, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Darius, the king of Persia, says, keep your eye on the God of Israel because he has his eye on all of you. Can you imagine when all the governors and all the dignitaries and all the people from all over the earth got that decree and it was read by their mayors or by their leaders or by their officials? How is this coming out of a Persian king's mouth? He believed they are the gods in flesh. How in the world would a Persian king, a Persian leader say, like, say this? And yet there it was. A decree made its rounds all over the world to acknowledge and make the world aware that the Jewish God was the one true God. Isn't it ironic the Old Testament begins with Babylon causing the world to be divided and lose sight of God. The Tower of Babel, right? Nimrod builds a tower, right? And he, he deceives the nation, the world into worshiping him and the, and, the, and the tower building a shrine to heaven to see if they could outrank God. 
The, the Tower of Babel is this point in the history of the world where the world is divided and loses sight of the one true God. And then it ends. The Old Testament ends with God using Babylon to unite the world and put him back on display. Funny how history rhymes at times, isn't it? Daniel goes on to have more dreams, though, if you read the rest of the book. He has visions of Greece conquering Persia. He has visions of a beast conquering Greece and the beast changing the world and having an influence over the world until the last days. He has a vision that this beast, though it is conquered, its remnants and its divided up units will end up you know, uh, you know, spreading out to the whole world and through this beast and his remnants, the, the whole world will um, be ruled until the end of days. And now we, of course, know this beast has to be Rome. Rome, of course, conquered the world after Greece, the Greek empire was divided. Rome changed the world, connected the world, brought a universal um, uh, you know, uh, uh, ideology and, and understanding to the world. And to this day, Rome, Roman influence impacts the world um, and the, the influence that came out of Europe. And over the last 1,500 years, even though Rome, the Roman Empire has been dis- dispersed and uh, uh, no longer exists, the modern world continues to exist in the shadow of the Roman Empire. If you go read Daniel 7 and 8, you get this idea that Daniel saw the future of the world. He saw how it all would all play out. He saw that Babylon would fall to Persia, to Greece, and then to Rome, and then he would see the rest of days playing out under that shadow. All of this bringing a global agenda in view for Israel's God. Now, this is a big deal because every, everybody in the Old Testament thought that Israel was just going to be in its own little corner of the world with a God that loved them more than everybody else, and it was going to live out its days as this prosperous kingdom that didn't deal with the rest of the world. And yet Daniel has global aspirations in mind for God, global agenda in mind for the God of Israel. All of a sudden, God is bigger than anybody thought he was or could be and 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 would you believe that Daniel predicted here's the just makes your hair stand up on your arms Daniel predicted to the very year when Israel's Messiah would parade into Jerusalem that Daniel sees such an outline of history he sees such a sees such a global agenda for God as he's seen it all play out in his visions and he doesn't know exactly you know he doesn't detail and describe exactly uh, but we can deduce from Daniel's writings that Daniel sees and predicts to the very year the scene that we just read about in John 12. Here's what Daniel says in Daniel 9, and let me explain this to you, this, just to, to, to not go too fast. Daniel says 70 weeks, and that word weeks in Hebrews is a word that just means sevens. Now, I don't want to lose anybody here, but Daniel sees 77-year periods, 77-year periods, right? Weeks is just a word that, that, that it, it could mean weeks, it could mean, it could, it's just time units. 77-year periods are decreed about your people. So this is him getting a vision of God's global agenda, God's kingdom agenda for the rest of the world, for the, for the uh, full fulfillment of days. 70 weeks are decreed about your people in your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity. So notice the finality in mind. To bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, to anoint a most holy place. So this is his vision of how everything's going to play out in all eternity. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the world to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince. Now the going out to restore and build Jerusalem speaks of the restoration of Israel under Persian decree. Now this happened in Daniel's lifetime and Daniel would live to see it. And many believe that Daniel is the one who showed these prophecies to Cyrus and Cyrus 
under the anointing of God, under the vision of Daniel, said, hey, i got to send these people back. This is too real for me to, to, to deny and to downplay. Cyrus the Great sends uh, the leaders of, sends a team to rebuild Israel, rebuild Jerusalem under Zerubbabel, under Ezra, eventually Nehemiah, from the going out to restore and build Jerusalem. And then Daniel says there's a time unit. From that day to the coming of an anointed one, to the day when Israel says our Messiah has arrived. There shall be seven weeks, then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. And after 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. So Daniel sees a period of six, 69 seven-year periods, or 69 seven-year units. And, and, and just to kind of break this down, just so nobody's lost, Daniel sees a seven-year, uh, seven seven-year periods, which is 49 years, and then he sees the 62 seven-year periods, which is 434 years. Now that's what, Dan, what we just read from the seven units and then the 62. Daniel sees 49 years, and it took them 49 years to rebuild the temple. That's historical facts. You can read about it in Ezra, read about it in Nehemiah. It took them 49 years to rebuild the temple. And from the day the temple is finished to the day that Jesus rode in on a donkey is 434 years. 49 plus 434, you have 69 different seven-year periods. And seven is a biblical number that God, the Bible uses numbers to kind of stand for special things. Again, we can get lost in this stuff, but to break this down for us very easily, 49 years from the, to the build the second temple, 434 years from completion to the Palm Sunday when the Messiah was welcomed and was rejected by the Jewish leaders. This really leaves an unfinished story for Israel because Daniel saw 77s, not 69, right? He saw 77-year periods. There are 69 of them. But there's an unfinished story that will not remain unfinished forever. God's not done with the nation of Israel. And Israel will get a chance as a nation to undo their grave mistake of rejecting Jesus as Messiah. But between Israel's rejection and their coming one-day acceptance of Jesus, Jesus turned to the Gentiles. And this little unit that we read in John is just a teaser of that, right? The Jews reject him. The world accepts him, or the world, he turns to the world and finds acceptance in the most unlikely of places, the Gentiles, the Greeks and the Romans from far away. These, some Greeks, are just the tip of the iceberg for what was to come, a picture of what the immediate future would look like when Jesus turned and built his church, the bride of Christ, the hope of for the Gentiles. Jesus said this of the ensuing days after his own death. When you see Jerusalem surrounded by her armies, know that there's a transition going on. The anointed one was cut off after that 430-year period. They rejected the Messiah, and just a few years later, they will fall by the edge of the sword, led captive among the nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. What's that alluding to? Well, again, remember Daniel had a vision of 77-year periods. We know what the first seven, 49 years, was. We know what the 434 years were, but there's still a seven-year period left that's all about God's plan for Israel as it pertains to the whole world. 
When the end comes, there will be one last seven, making a perfect 70, a number of completion. But right now, we're still waiting on that last seven until the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled. The last seven remains unfinished. But, Paul says in Romans 11, Let's you be wise in your own sight. I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel, and he doesn't mean every Jew that's alive without acceptance. He means the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel will accept, will acknowledge, hey, we made a mistake 2,000 years ago. We paraded him in on the donkey as the Messiah. We rejected him. The last 2,000 years played out like they did because we did not accept the one that came to us. Think, is God going to do that one day? That's what the Bible tells us. That's what the Scriptures teach us. And Daniel had the first 69 sevens figured out, didn't he? That's played out, and then we're in the gap. And in the meantime... The church has been started and has been fleshed and has been built in the hardening of Israel. Now, that's why we often talk about this seven-year tribulation period. You've heard that before. Uh, tribulation means a shaking period, a period where the earth is going to be prepared for the kingdom of God, where God's work through the church is done and His work with Israel is reactivated and completed. Now, I bring all this up to set a tone for these last few verses we're going to look at. Because we need to know that this world is not at its leisure. Every event, every election, every major event in our world is a part of God's kingdom rollout plan. Do you believe that? It's all leading up to a world where Israel takes center stage against all the opposition and resistance from the rest of the world. Israel will correct a 2,000-year-old error and proclaim Jesus as their Messiah. This will bring a worldwide onslaught against Israel. But that will all lead to a major victory for God in His kingdom. Now, opinions will differ as to where we will be in all of this. Some view the church as having its own age, and once the church age is over, God turns to Israel, and, and it's almost like there's a separate, you know, separate focus from God. I, I'm not one to split things up like that necessarily. I believe that, uh, you know, I believe God still, Israel is still part of God's plan today. He hasn't completely turned away um, from them, and it's not like he's turned the switch on and he's going to turn it off again or vice versa. Um, but there is a belief and there is plenty of scriptural evidence that suggests the church will be raptured or removed from the earth into heaven as God turns his focus toward Israel to signify this beginning of this shaking period, of this tribulation period, this day of the Lord. Now, I believe there's conclusive evidence that suggests that there is a pre-tribulation rapture that we're going to see one day. But that doesn't mean that we're going to escape and evade any and all trouble and tribulation as we get toward this end time. The world is not on our side now, just as it won't be in the future. The goal and point of all of this isn't to get in debates about timetables and theories and interpretations, but it's to emphasize that Daniel's vision has already been proven true. All the kingdoms of man are pawns on a chessboard to bring everyone under the influence of the one true God. Something else I want to show you from Daniel. I saw in my night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there come one like a son of man. He came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory in a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. 
His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. His kingdom one is one that shall not be destroyed. That is what this is all about. Building His kingdom. These Greeks were just the beginning of the world figuring out that this is not our, agenda. This is not our game. We're not in control. Now the way Jesus greets the Greeks makes it very clear. Choosing Jesus means rejecting the world. Following Jesus means unfollowing the world. And come on, if our future is Jesus, not the world, if our future is His kingdom, not our kingdoms or anybody else's, why wouldn't we expect and welcome these absolutes? Listen to how Jesus answers in verse 23. The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Notice He doesn't say it's going to come. He doesn't say it's going to be someday in the future. He makes it very clear that the Greeks that have turned to him, anybody that turns to him, anybody that figures out, hey, there's something bigger going on than just what Rome's doing or what America's doing or what that party's doing or what that party's doing. This is something that is God's activity. The hour is now. The time is now. Everything is, is and should be about glorifying Jesus. We should not wait to put Jesus first. Waiting might be too late. If we're truly kingdom seekers like these Greeks were, we will put Jesus first even if it costs us. Notice how Jesus alludes to the consequences of following Him in verse 24. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much, fruit, much grain, much fruit. Now, when Jesus is he's using this kind of very charged language, he's talking about planting seeds. Now, you don't think about it when you plant a seed. You don't think I'm killing the seed. Because what you're doing to that seed is you're giving it hope to come to something better, Right? You're planting that seed, you're burying that seed because you're giving it the opportunity to come alive in a better form, right? You're killing it in this form, but you're giving it the opportunity to become something even better. See, this life is just the seed for the kingdom to come. Every kingdom, every life, every person, every relationship is just the seed. Again, I talked about this a couple of weeks ago. This life is not the, not the, heaven's not the consolation prize for this life. It's the other way around. Jesus knew that his own life was just the seed for his own resurrection to come, his own ascension, but the same is true for all of us. And to break this down and to spread it across all the aspects of our life, what may seem like a breakdown in our life could be for the building up of our kingdom life. And that's not easy in the breakdown, is it? But this is the attitude we've got to have if we're going to make it through and we're going to see the purpose of what God is up to. Who knows things that seem like failures, things that seem like downfalls in our life could actually be the seeds of potential and opportunity for glory and kingdom purposes. See, we get these things and say, I don't want anything to do with this. Can I get the thing back that fell apart? When God's saying the reason why I gave it to you falling apart it's because this is a seed of something better. This is a seed of potential and opportunity for what's to come. Don't be so quick to say, I didn't ask for this. I don't want this. I can't use this. This isn't fair. This isn't good. God's saying it's the seed. It's the picture of what's to come. It's very hard to always accept things like that. But that's what 
Jesus is telling these Greeks in, in verse 25. He says, he who loves his life will lose it. He who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. And I think what he's saying is if you think that this life is something to hold on to, your kingdom, your country, your ideology, your stuff, and nothing wrong with those things. They're all God-given, God-ordained. But Jesus is trying to tell us they're all building up towards something better. And when he's talking about loving and hating, he's using very charged language. But by hating, he's talking about disregarding for the world's rules, trusting in and abiding by God's. He's saying when the world says you've lost, when the world says that's not going to work, when the world says it doesn't work this way, you say to the world, I don't regard the way you operate. I trust in and abide by God's operating power. He has a plan, and I'm resting in his. I know the world says, hey, this news is not good. I know the world says this isn't going to work out well. I know the world says this is not good for you or what we accept or what they will accept, but I'm not going to regard what the world says. In fact, I'm going to hate what the world says. I'm going to trust in and abide by what God has said because I've seen what God's doing behind the scenes. He's planning and building a kingdom, and there is a cry in my heart. There is a longing in my heart. I know in all of creation there is a longing and a groaning in our creation creation every creature in this on this planet groans and longs for what God is building and God is preparing and in my own heart there is a longing and I'm going to listen to that longing I'm not going to listen to somebody else telling me it's not the way it should be because I'm trusting in God he has a plan go read Romans 8 verse 18 through 27 leading up to 28 the famous verse talks about the groaning that's within every one of us and how our spirit, the Holy Spirit, actually wants to help us whenever we're panicking, whenever, whenever we're giving up, whenever we're thinking this isn't going to work. The Holy Spirit's trying to say to you, don't give up. This is a seed for what God's about to do. Don't give up. Look at what God's doing behind the scenes. Remember what Daniel saw. Remember that kingdom that he is building. Remember this scene that God predicted all those years before. Just like the Greeks were seeking Jesus, we have come to Jesus. This is all playing out like God anticipated it. Listen to the Holy Spirit. Try to calm your heart and remind you there's a bigger plan. There's a bigger agenda at play. Maybe it's time we start deferring to what the Spirit wants, not what our flesh feels, right? Not panicking or giving up when life falls apart, but seeking God's will, what, might he, what he might be up to. Following him through the fallout, not just following him if he prevents the falls. Listen, if you go back to where Daniel was at, as he saw all that stuff happen, and he thought, man, this is not going to work out. Right, right. He didn't think that, but you would think, hey, this isn't going to work out. But even in this scenario, when Israel rejects Jesus and these Greeks are the beginning of the world turning to him and the Gentiles turning to him, this was not a surprise to God. This was all a part of his plan. And I think that's awesome, isn't it? That's encouraging, I think. Verse 26, 27. Or verse 26, if anyone serves me, let him follow me, and where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him my father will honor. This story began with some Greeks looking for and wanting to see Jesus. If you want to see Jesus, if you want to experience Jesus, if you want Jesus to work in your life, then we must seek the kingdom. We must seek his kingdom. Anticipate it, prepare for it, embrace it, and follow its breadcrumbs. And if this life hands you some seeds that you didn't ask for, some broken pieces that you didn't ask for, 
some tragedies and trials that you didn't ask for, some news and plans you didn't ask for. Just listen, God is up to something bigger, and he can take those breadcrumbs, those pieces, those seeds. He is building something. He's planning something, and you're a part of it. His kingdom, it's coming. The world isn't going to be here forever, not like it is right now. It's going to get better. We got a taste of it tonight. It's all building up towards something incredible, something planned and prepared by God. Nothing's accidental. Nothing is spontaneous. It's all a part of God's plan. So let's not run from it. Let's run towards it. That's where Jesus is. He's waiting on us. That's what he told those Greeks. Hey, follow me is going to be a little bit of a rump, bumpy ride. But just to let y'all in on what's going on, y'all wouldn't be here if God didn't have everything in his hands. We wouldn't either. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for the encouraging power of your word. God, it's so cool to see everything come together. And God, this isn't, I'm not that smart, but you're awesome. And, and, and your word is so powerful and so clear and so inspired. Lord, as we can kind of step back and see that your kingdom is being built and being prepared, Lord, thank you for making us a small part of this. Thank you, Lord, for having all this figured out. And Lord, it's, we can take a look into it and we can get excited about it and learn a little bit about it, but we'll never know the whole story. But God, thank you that you've given us just a taste of it, just a glimpse of it. And thank you that when we feel like we've been given broken pieces, we've, we've been handed a bunch of seeds. Thank you, Lord, that we can trust that we can plant those and we can put our faith in what you're going to do because we know that this life is not in vain. It's not going to just end one day and we're going to amount to nothing. We're a part of something that's eternal. Everlasting dominion of the kingdom of God. Every one of us, every person, single, married, divorced, widowed, complicated, straight and narrow, whatever, our life is, whatever road our lives are taking us on, you've got it all figured out. You've got it all in your hands. Thank you, Father, for giving us that kind of confidence. Thank you for the kingdom. And even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. We ask this in his name. Amen.